Where Kindness Lives is designed to cultivate a kinder world by helping to inform and inspire. Hosted by Jenny Sager from Nextdoor, the neighborhood network connecting you to what truly matters so you can belong. We'll chat to the most thought-provoking individuals paving the way for positive change and hear from neighbors who deliver small acts of kindness every day. So come on a journey to where kindness lives. Hi, I'm Jenny Sager. My guest today has a question for us to ponder. What's the single best action a person can take to live longer, take the edge off depression, and revitalize a relationship? New York Times bestselling author of Platonic, Dr. Marissa Franco, says the answer is one word, friendship. Her research focuses on the powerful role of communities in shaping who we are and how we flourish. So what's the art of making new friends and keeping them? Let's dive in. Marissa Franco, welcome to Where Kindness Lives. Thank you. I'm so excited to be chatting with you, Jenny. So we always start this podcast by asking, what does kindness mean to you? It's a simple question, but I've been thinking really deeply about it. I've, I've been, you know, in my class, we've been talking about attachment styles and how basically like when you've found your own inner sense of security, you're more likely to be kind because you can direct your energies outward because you don't have to focus as much on your own internal turmoil, right? So I think kindness is like, I guess I'll, I'll say then kindness is like a form of healing for yourself and others around you. I love that. We've been asking this question to so many people and we haven't heard an answer like that before. And I I really, really love that. Is there someone that comes to mind that you feel like has demonstrated that in your life when you think about the way that you just explained kindness? Mm, Yeah, definitely. My friend, Vanessa, she's like a very present person. She's the kind of person that makes you feel so safe and so cared for. We call ourselves kindred spirits because we actually haven't spent that much time together, but we feel very close to each other. And she lives in St. Croix and I visit her and I'm going back to visiting her. And I think she's, yeah, she's just a, a beautiful example of kindness. And that's a really good segue into whether or not you can build those strong friendships despite distances, because you just said you haven't seen each other that much, but you're obviously really, really close friends. So how do you do that? Like, how do you build a strong friendship with somebody who doesn't necessarily live near you? Yeah. um, So a few things help, right? There's like, we talk about like, how long does it take to make a friend? But I think that's a difficult question to answer because it really depends on how you spend your time together. And there are certain things you can do when you're together that really supercharge your feelings of connection, like being vulnerable, for example, like that after people are vulnerable with each other, they report feeling much more connected or sharing affection, telling someone how much you like and value them. That is something, you know, when friendship pairs were hanging out and the researchers were trying to predict who's going to stay friends, they found that the people that shared affection were sort of like the most likely to to stay friends over time. But the last thing I think for friendship across distances, that's really important. There's this study that talks about like the importance of seeing them as flexible, not fragile. So expect that there'll be ebbs and flows. And when there's ebbs, don't assume that it's over. Assume that you can kind of, it's just sleepy and you can kind of reignite it at any time. Yeah, because whether you're you're near or far, we're all really busy, right? I think people are calling this the like 
busy era or whatever it is that we're like, everyone's just, oh my God, I'm so busy or I'm so, you know, yes, I can see you in like two months on, you know, December 21st or whatever. So how do you fit in friendships when we know everybody is super busy and can you maintain a friendship and make it valuable when you don't have a lot of time? Yeah. So I think there's a way that we can take the things that we do already and do them in community. Um, so for example, like if you work from home and you get kind of lonely, right, you can make your friends, your colleagues and say, would anybody like to co-work together on a day? Or if you like to work out, Hey, do you want to go to this yoga class together weekly? Or, Hey, you have to eat lunch, right? Do you want to meet for lunch during the day? Right. That we can just slip in, in the sort of the periods of our day that we're spending alone, we can do them in community and they'll just take the same amount of time. Um, so I think that's that's really important for people that are busy. What I also think gets in the way if you're very busy is not necessarily finding the time, but the coordination fatigue, right? Your schedule's like this, my schedule's like this, like, oh my gosh. So I think it can also be helpful to have a reoccurring time on the calendar to hang out that's already there and you know where you're going to meet and you don't, and you plan other things around it so that nothing ends up getting in the way. Like me and my friends, we do a biweekly dinner where one of us hosts the others and cooks them dinner and we're all very busy, but this is on our calendar for like the next six months. So we're able to work around it and we've all coordinated this. And that also makes it a lot easier. Oh, I love that. I might steal that idea. And, you know, shout out to my friend, Sue, who I catch up with at 530 in the morning. So we go for runs together. And that's it's like you said, that's just, you know, that's where we fit it in 530 (laughs) a.m. I read that the average American hasn't made a new friend in the last five years, which is so crazy to me. But 45% of people say they'd go out of their way to make a new friend if they only knew how. Why do people find it hard to make new friends? Well, we use this template from childhood, which wherein friendship happened organically. And sociologist Rebecca Adams would say, friendship happens organically when we have repeated unplanned interaction and shared vulnerability. So that's school. It's gym, it's lunch, it's recess. But for us as adults, we may see people every day, but we're not always vulnerable with like our work colleagues, for example. So And one study actually found that the more time you spend together at work, the less close you feel, because I think it's because like we only really show one side of ourselves. So what that means is that if you rely on that same template, that it'll just happen and it's going to happen organically from childhood into adulthood, you're going to be lonely because friendship really doesn't happen organically in adulthood. Like you really have to try and put it in, in the effort. Um, Are there certain traits that people have that make them naturally kind of easier to build friendships and those friendship values? And if so, what's your advice on how to improve those? Yeah. So I used to think that to make friends, I have to be entertaining or insightful, funny, right? But when I read the research, I found that that's like the least important thing people report wanting in a friend. And the most important thing people want in a friend is someone who makes them feel like they matter. So the people that are really good at making friends are really good at making other people feel like they belong and feel like they matter, right? And so that looks like, 
you greet people warmly, right? You initiate interactions, you reach out to them, you check in on them. They say there's something important coming up. You check in on that day to see how they're doing, right? Like you show interest in people, you give them your full attention, you put your phone away, you ask them questions about themselves. Like all of these things are what make people really, really good at connecting with other people. Because according to this theory called risk regulation theory, we decide how much to invest in a relationship based on our view of how likely we are to get rejected. So when people say, where people are sort of saying or implying, hey, I like you, right? What they're doing is telling you you're not going to get rejected. And that frees people up to feel comfortable investing in you. There's actually a theory called the theory of inferred attraction. And what that means is that people like people that they think like them. So I guess the tip too is like, try to look for something to like in everyone that you meet. Interesting. That's so interesting. I think people, as you said, are really open to new friendships. I mean, we see this all the time on Nextdoor where somebody posts, you know, hey, does anyone want to go for a coffee or does anyone want to go for a run? And you just instantly see loads of people responding. And it's it's almost like they're just waiting for somebody else to say it. Um, do you find that, that like everyone's kind of waiting for someone else to do it and, but you kind of need to be the person who takes that first step? Yeah. Like everybody's not asking you to hang out, not because they don't like you, but because they're scared just like you are, right? Like, why aren't you asking everyone to hang out? Cause you're probably scared too. And I met this woman and she was really good at making friends. And I was like, okay, how did you get so good at making friends? And she said, My mom always told me, everybody wants to be your friend. They're just waiting for you to initiate. So you believe everyone, everyone can make friends. There's there's someone out there for everyone, like we say about dating, right? I do. And I do. And I want to temper that just by saying that you might get rejected, right? It's less likely to happen than you think, but it still might happen. But I think we need to see like rejection as part of the trajectory to intimacy and belonging rather than a sign that you should stop trying, right? Like if you're trying to make friends and connect with people, part of that is facing rejection. It's not a sign that you're doing something wrong. It's a sign that you're doing something right. Like it's a sign that you're putting yourself out there. And there's actually research on this that when college students read about a story from someone where they said, At first, it was really hard to make friends and I didn't feel comfortable with people, but I I waited it out. And over time, I found those connections. And when they shared their own stories of that, they actually reported feeling more belonging over time. And they were kind of less likely to to leave the game. I think an issue that some people face is, right, they'll put themselves out there once. It won't work out. And they'll be like, never again, right? Like, that's it. (laughs) Nobody likes me. Nobody wants to hang out with me, right? But no, like, That's not a sign to stop. And in fact, when I talked about the mere exposure effect, the implications of that, this idea that the more familiar we are with people, the more we like them, is that when we don't know people well, we're going to be weary and it's going to be a little awkward and it's going to be a little uncomfortable. We're not going to trust people in the same way. But the mere exposure effect suggests that that's part of finding connection. It's like stage one of finding connection. It's not a sign to duck out of connections. So I want us to think really, I think it's helpful if you want to make connections with people to think of rejection as a success because it means that I'm putting myself out there and I can't control the outcome of that, but I can control my own behavior and I am engaging in a way that's setting myself up to find the community that I really want, even if in this instance, it didn't work out. Where Kindness Lives, we'll be back in a moment. Do you love where you live? 
Well, of course you do, or else you wouldn't live there. We have an amazing campaign coming up right around the world on Nextdoor called Love Your Neighborhood. It's a photography competition, and you don't have to be a pro. You can just get outside with your phone, take a picture of something that shows why you love your neighborhood. It could be your favorite local cafe. It could be a neighbor who you just love saying hi to every day, an animal you see, or a favorite park. We want to see what you love about your neighborhood. Post it on Nextdoor with the hashtag Love Your Neighborhood. It's coming up in just a few weeks, and you could win some awesome prizes along the way. We did some research actually at Nextdoor, some scientific research around the world where we actually were able to quantify how many neighborly connections you need to build to start getting that positive impact on your mental health and well-being. And that number was six. So if you could connect with six neighbors, that's when you would start to get that positive impact on your mental health and well-being. In your research, do you have you found a number of friends? So is it, you know, you just need one really close friend to kind of start having that impact? Is it three? Is it, is there no number? Well, we know that the biggest bang for your buck when it comes to like friendship and its impact on mental health is when you go from zero to one, <laughs> like that's huge. That's going to make a huge difference. And then the impact on your mental health, it starts to level out around like three friends, um, three or four friends. Um, but that doesn't mean you should stop making friends at three or four, right? Because we know that one of the things friendship does for us, which is why we tend to make a lot of friends in our young 20s, is it expands our sense of our own identities. We connect with different people. They show us new things. A different side of ourselves comes out with each different person, right? And so it makes us feel more expansive. So if you're feeling like, man, I feel like I'm stuck in a rut, or I feel like it's things are too routine, or I feel like dull, I'm like bored with myself, right? That might be a sign that you need a sort of larger network to bring you new experiences and that sense of like adventure, if that's what you're looking for. Um, but as we get older, we tend to, this is a theory called the socio-emotional selectivity hypothesis that as we get older, we tend to prune our friendships and be like, I don't want to be friends with everyone. I want to be friends with the people that I feel really close to and very intimate with. So older folks actually report wanting like fewer kind of quality connections because they're, they're prerogative, right? They're thinking, I only have this amount of time left. I want to spend it with people that I feel really close to. So it also can really depend on your life stage. Well, and I think that again, relates to why it's harder to make friends in later years, because you're kind of trying to break into circles of people who've already made that decision. Like, oh, I've already got my, you know, five friends and I don't really need any new ones. <laughs> so I think it goes back to that, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. And some advice that I have for people who are, who are facing that, because I think it's real, is to find the transitioners. People that are in times of transition, I just moved to a new city, just started new school, just retired, just got out of this relationship. They tend to be particularly open to friendship. So if you have the sense that, oh, I want to make friends, but nobody seems open to it, right? Like make yourself intentionally find the transitioners. And I think we tend to find these transitioners when we pursue a hobby and community with other people, when we join these social groups, right? Those are people that wanting are looking to expand their network, are looking to meet people. So you already are putting yourself within a certain selection pool that makes it more likely for you to find the connections you seek. You're listening to Where Kindness Lives, and we're chatting to friendship expert and psychologist and New York Times bestseller, Marissa Franco. Marissa, I want to talk to you also about friendships at work, which you mentioned a little bit earlier. I love how you 
talk about this employee myth and how sometimes you can be happy in your job, but you feel like you don't belong. And that that eventually leads to really an issue at work, doesn't it? Is it possible to stay in that job when you're, you like what you're doing, but you don't have that sense of belonging? Or is that a sign that you really need to move on? Well, okay. So in the research on what makes work meaningful, they find that the top three factors are your relationships, um, your sense of competence, like are you feel like you're overcoming challenges, you're accomplishing something, and your autonomy. Do you feel like you have choice over the tasks you do, whether you take a break versus being more micromanaged, right? So, so there is this way that if you have competence, you have autonomy, it can still feel very meaningful for you. But the factor that matters most out of those three is actually your relationships, right? So, so, so yes, I think obviously you can enjoy your work if it's really meaningful, even if you are, don't have those connections with other people. But having those connections will really make it so much better. And I think even being in a state of a connective state makes us better employees, right? Like there's research that finds that when you have a conversation with someone and come back and try to do it a uh, like demanding task, you're actually more productive at it, right? Versus when you just spent that time alone. So there's this way connection kind of rephrase, you, it kind of refreshes the juices in our brain so that we can do better. There's other research that finds that when you estimate how steep a hill is, you see it as less steep when you estimate it alongside a friend, which suggests that we see these challenges that we might face at work, for example, as less challenging when we have that social connection. So, you know, and, and friends at work, it, it honestly predicts outcomes like, are you likely to be retained, your fulfillment, your innovation, how well you work with teams, like, you know, the cohesion, the commitment to the workplace, right? Where loneliness predicts all of the opposite things. So it's really worth taking the time to try to cultivate friendships in the workplace. And it's something that I'm very intentional about. I'm actually created the social committee <laughs> at my job because I, I I say this from as someone who used to think if we connect that gets in the way of my work and I'm not going to be as good as an employee if I have connections. And obviously during COVID, one of the big effects was that everyone's, well, most people started working from home and we've kind of moved a lot of companies to remote working or remote offices, you know, even if it's part two days in the office and three days at home. So it's kind of this new hybrid workforce where people are spending less time in that office setting. So how do you do that when you're working virtually or you're, you know, you're only going into the office one day a week? And what does that look like now? Yeah. So it looks like when you do go into the office trying to create connections, I think there's like a, I remember reading an effect in like the telework research that like two to three days is kind of the sweet spot. Um, so when on those days you're in the office, making sure that you are connecting with people, it might look like if you are at home, some people are fully remote, finding ways to be like, I'm going to have a plan a lunch with friend each week, or even we're going to co-work together if we can each week, right? Um, if you are open to Zoom, I know not everyone likes Zoom connections, but when I stopped working at my job and I didn't see my friends, we had like a monthly Zoom call. And the other thing is like, if you want to make friends at work, you have to stop talking about work, right? Like that whole <laughs> effect that 
when you spend more time at work, you feel less close. I think that's because, again, we're only showing one side of our identity. We have to start talking about who we are as people, right? And people are like, oh my gosh, that's so risky. But there's so many things that you could share about you that are not risky, right? Like, what are your hobbies? What are your interests? Where do you like to travel to? You know, who's your family? You know, like, what shows are you watching? What music do you like? Like, just sharing that information with other people at your workplace really helps cement those connections. And my last tip, this is from Ryan Hubbard um, at the Kite String Project. He uses this term repotting, which means if you want to deepen a relationship, you have to vary the settings in which you interact. So if you want to make a work friend a real friend, before you leave that job, you need to start hanging out outside the workplace. So the assumption isn't just we need this setting for us to connect with each other. Yeah, yeah. Those are great tips. Absolutely great tips. Can you clear up what the difference is between acquaintances, good friends, best friends, and does it even matter? Well, I like to think of acquaintances as someone you know of and a friend as someone you know. Um, when it comes to good friends, I have a very particular definition. So I realized that some people use the term friend for what I would call good company. Good company is someone whose company you like. You like them as a person, you enjoy their company. But to me, a close friend is not just good company. A good friend is a commitment and an investment and a responsibility. I'm going to try to show up for you in your times of need. I'm going to try to um, celebrate your successes. I'm going to try to overall make your life a little lighter. I'm going to make you a priority in some way, right? And so for some of us, I think, we may think of friendships as just good company and then we're not investing, we're not trying, we're not showing up for our friends, right? And that's really going to harm our ability to make friends. And I think if we can understand friendships in the definition, we can understand it as something that's going to require our effort, going to require our prioritization in some way, right? It doesn't have to be your top priority, but that you're going to try to show up for this person if you can, right? That you're going to take your commitments to them seriously when you say you're going to do something, you're actually going to do it, right? That's going, what's going to foster a lot better friendship. There's a lot of research, too, that says the average age you meet your best friend is around 21, which I actually found really surprising because if I think of like my absolute best friends, most of them I've known since I was a kid. And then, you know, there's kind of maybe a second stage where you're a little bit older, but I found 21 really surprising. What, what, why is that? And do you think it's earlier? Do you agree with that being 21? Yeah. You know, I, I hadn't heard of that finding, but I could think of why, because around like 25, we have the most friends. So I think at that age, we're just like, we're kind of like friendship dating, friendship courting a bunch of different people. And we have the larger network. And I think what can help us find best friends is like when we have a big pool and we really choose that person that we feel like a really deep connection with. So I can understand why it might be 21. I also understand why you might think it, it would be your childhood friends because um, the research shows the longer a friendship has last, the more likely it is to continue to last, right? So if you do have a friend from your childhood, it has more staying power than a friend that you might have made later in life. Well, speaking of making friends later in life, I want to share a story with you from a next door neighbor. So Anne is in her 70s. She's a widow and she struggled to make meaningful friendships later in life. 
She recently moved and she decided to join Nextdoor to try and meet new friends. Her story was featured on national television in Australia, where she lives, where there's a loneliness epidemic, as I mentioned. So Anne is certainly not alone, and it's a very, very common story. I'm going to play a little bit of the television piece for you, and I'd love to hear your reaction to this story. I saw a woman advertised, come and see my garden. So I thought, well, I'll try it. And 18 women turned up. And half of them couldn't have cared less about the garden. Uh, It was just a chance for women to get together and connect. Since then, this mother of two even joined other ladies keen to meditate. When we're younger, we've got our kids' schools, we've got our work where we're meeting people, but as we get older, all of those go and, you know, family members die so that we have got less social life and we need to do something. Whether it's the app or something else, these success stories say, don't just sit there and be lonely. I don't think there's anything better than having friends. Social connection is our most important need. I literally agree with everything she said. I, yeah, I mean, we have, first of all, what I want to pull out that I think she did right is like, we have to try. We have to put ourselves out there. People are less likely to reject us than we think. They're excited to connect with us as long as we're willing to initiate. Social connection is so, so important. So we shouldn't just adapt to, um, to being lonely. And we need to create infrastructure for connection. And when we have that repleted unplanned interaction, when we create a sort of group around some sort of topic, right, it really, really gives it to gives that to us. So I think she's doing a great job and I could see why she's a success story. We would love to do what we call our kind carousel with you, which is where we get to ask you all kinds of questions. So I want to kick it off by just finding out what's the best thing you've ever done for one of your friends. Oh, man. What a great question this is. It sounds so um, so banal, but I think it's really powerful. Like I've been their confidants and I've been like a place of safety for them. And I've been a place where they could express things that were only in their heads before they were expressed to me. And um, they've been that for me too. Is there someone that is your best friend or a group of friends you want to give a quick shout out to? Sure. I will give a shout out to my best friends, Kana and Lori and my friend Vanessa, who I mentioned earlier as the kindred spirit. Amazing. What's your favorite TV friendship? So if you think about some of the famous friendships in TV series, old or new, who stands out? Issa and Molly from Insecure. Oh, gosh, that is everyone's talking about that show right now, aren't they? Amazing. What else are you watching? I was just watching The Midnight Club because I really like spooky stuff. It's about these like teenagers that are in hospice and they tell scary stories to one another and something weird is going on in like the the hospice house that they live in. It's it's scary, but it's well done. Well, we've got the holiday season coming up. Is there a gift you've received from a friend sometime in your life that stands out? Yeah, I um, my friend Michael Ann is so good at giving gifts. And when my book came out, Platonic, she hand stitched a bookmark with a picture of the logo from my book. What? That is crazy. Oh, my gosh. First of all, she must be super talented. But secondly, that is just absolutely amazing. You're living in D.C. at the moment, and there is so much fun stuff to do in Washington, D.C. What kind of things do you like to do for fun around there? 
I love the festivals. All the embassies have an event, have events. I love the museums. I love the um, holiday related things. Like I'm going to a haunted house for Halloween. I'm going to like see outdoor winter lights around Christmas. So yeah, DC is awesome. We have tons of great things to do here. It's been so much fun to talk to you today. There's so many great tips in this podcast for people to go out and make some friends. I love that we touched on why those neighborly connections are important too and and how you can build those friendships. Of course, if you want to start connecting in your neighborhood, you can go to nextdoor.com or download the Nextdoor app wherever you live. Marissa, where can people find out more about you and what do you have coming up? Yeah, so I share friendship tips on Instagram. I'm at... Dr. Marissa G. Franco, D-R-M-A-R-I-S-A-G-F-R-A-N-C-O. On my website, drmarissagfranco.com, you can reach out for speaking engagements on how to make friends within or outside the workplace or take a free quiz that assesses your strengths and weaknesses as a friend. And if you want more, you can always buy my book, which is called Platonic, How the Science of Attachment Can Help You Make and Keep Friends. Amazing. Thank you so much, Marissa. I'm going to call you my friend now and um, hopefully we'll talk again. It's been great to meet you. Thank you so much, Jenny. It was great to meet you.